Today on The Black Goat, we talk about teaching as a part of our professional identities and how that's evolved over the years, and a letter about being associated with psychological associations. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. You didn't wave at me. I didn't wave. Oh, <laughs> the, come on. Be, nobody nobody knew. You just outed me. I, I think we should do an episode where Samin and I switch when we say hi to you and see if people can pick Confuse out the everybody. one. Yeah. We could... Yeah, we could do the, like, guess who's talking, and then everyone will know when it's me. But uh. <laughs> I don't know. I have a new mic now. I thought that I was indistinguishable from you now. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Did everyone notice uh, last episode, Alexa's new mic? We're so excited about Alexa's new yeah. microphone. I, I think it sounds dramatically better. Yeah. I, I, you're, you're, like, in full 3D color audio <laughs> in my ears. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> Uh, what's new with you guys? What's what's been happening since our last uh, chit chat record session? Oh, this quarter has been kicking my ass. Oh, I feel too. like it was really obvious in the last episode that I was completely out of it because I just kept losing my train of thought. So I'm excited to yeah. redeem myself today. It, it was. No. <laughs> <laughs> my dog is also having a tough quarter. I was walking her today. She's really old. She's like ten and a half. And I stopped to get a scone for myself on the walk, and I ended up having to use it all to lure her all the way back home. And the last block, I had to pick oh. up and carry her. Oh my gosh! Oh, I feel like bear. you need to you need to give some of Bear's stats. Like, how much does Bear weigh? She weighs seventy five pounds, but she has yeah. a steel plate in one knee and a torn ACL in the other knee. So, like, she can she can. I think it was actually like she was genuinely limping and mm -hmm. the scone helped. But after a while, she just needed to be picked up. Yeah. My cats. So, are, my, so bears having a bears having a tough quarter, too. huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's been tough for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> and my cats. What's are being been super tough for needy. you? It's been like a very pet centered. I respond yeah. very poorly to needy cats. So I think like <laughs> I honestly think that if just people like needy saw, people. <laughs> I respond super well to needy people. I think people are shocked by my response to needy cats as a result. I, I really think that if people saw how I interacted with cats, they would like think that I was a bad person. Um, so like my, my roommate was away for a week and um, then her cat whiskey gets really lonely when she's away. And so whiskey will like try to sit on my lap while I'm trying to like play the piano or work on my computer or something. And yeah, I mean, so I just generally, like, I generally don't really like pets, which I feel is a, not an okay thing to say. Um, I think, like, you know, you know when people talk about things that would, like, like ruin someone for them on a first date, and they're like, yeah. oh, people who are bad tippers, I feel like another one is, like, people who don't like pets. Yeah. Um, it's like a special kind of being evil that you can't find love <laughs> for these innocent <laughs> beings. But I just don't, I just, I just don't get it. Or I'm, like, willing to tolerate really frustrating annoying people but pets are just that's like, the thing nah. you use all your love on humans i think many of us who like non-human animals it's because <laughs> we contrast them with humans and we're like oh cats aren't so bad <laughs> uh, one of my friends says that um the space in my heart that i have so i i kind of like being um around new couples which i think is not that common like i think 
people often <laughs> find new couples really annoying. Um, but I don't mind being like the third wheel around a new couple. And so my friend was saying that like the the place in my heart um, where my love for pets is supposed to go is replaced by my like ability to value new couples. So maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not such a so such an ice queen. Yeah, and that's that's some pretty deep compassion to be able to find affection for new couples because they true. are super fucking annoying. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've so redeemed cute, yourself. <laughs> we'll let you stay on the podcast, Alexa. Uh, I did have one awesome experience since we last talked. I got to report the famous professor who grabbed my ass at a conference, which I mentioned in a blog once, 16 years later, there was an investigation and they called me and I was like, yep, he grabbed my ass. That, that felt pretty good. That is validation. Wow. Yeah. That, that is uh, justice taking its slow, sweet time. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, that's, uh, um, that's, I mean, I think with, you know, Harvey Weinstein being in the news as, as, prompted a lot of good conversation around that. And every time something like that happens, I, I, I hope that things will change and, and sort of move in a better direction. Um, I don't know. Do you know, was this, was this started pre Harvey Weinstein or was this because of the whole thing? Yeah. I wonder if there's a connection. It would be great to just like get a lot of the stuff that everybody talks about, you know, there's a lot of people that a lot of women know who to avoid and stuff. And like, it would just be so nice to get it all on the record, not necessarily whatever varying degrees of publicly or not, depending on what's called yeah. for. But we have a spot for that on psych map where you can just like make a list of. <laughs> <laughs> Here oh, the... Well, do you, so I've, I've done this before in, in lab meetings and I, I've heard a lot of uh, women have said that they, they do this too. Um, I mean, I don't think I do it a ton, but like I've said, I've named names a couple of times in lab meetings and said like, Hey, just so you know, like this person has a re- reputation when we're at a conference, be careful if they're like getting too schmoozy with you or whatever. Um, and it's a weird position for me to be in. I, one of my grad students once was like, because I was, I think once I was talking in sort of generalities and one of them was like, why won't you say who it is? And I was like, yeah, I should say, but it's weird because a lot of times I've obviously like, I'm not telling personal story. Maybe it's not obvious. I'm not telling personal stories. There are things sometimes I've been told in confidence. And so I'm often torn myself, like not so much to protect the person who's being talked about, but more that the, you know, if word gets out, then the woman who told me, it might come back around her. And if she hasn't explicitly told me to sort of that it's okay to talk about. Um, so I don't know. How do you guys handle that when you, especially when it's not something that happened to you, but you hear, like, do you talk to your graduate students? Do you name names? Do you, you know, how do you deal with that? If I know for a fact that it happened, which uh, if someone who I trust tells me or someone tells me, um, then I will name names. I'll usually ask the person who tells me if it's okay if I, talk generally about the fact that I have good evidence that this person might be sketchy, et cetera, um, and get their permission to talk about it in general ways. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the answer because I have only had male graduate students and in my heteronormative ways, I don't warn my male graduate students about (laughs) male professors and I don't know about any female professors to warn them about. Yeah. Or male professors, I guess. But yeah, yeah, right. No. Yeah, I yeah, that is I I think the you know what one of the things that's I think really frustrating when when you hear these stories is 
I mean, our society in all different ways is really bad about handling sexual harassment, but at least on paper, if it's within an institution, like if it's one professor in an institution harassing a student at the same institution, on paper, there's theoretically a way to handle that. Now, they get horrifically botched. The, the recent Rochester case is an example of that, right? People don't do what they're supposed to do. But at least there's the hope sometimes that it could be taken care of. But when it's across institutions, when it's, you know, things that happen at conferences, for example, um, it's there's there's so little sort of I mean, you can complain to the person's own institution, but they have massive incentives not to take it seriously. And and it's a different process. And I don't know, it's very frustrating to see these things play out. Because most of the time when I hear about stuff, it's because of things that happen at conference. That's why I'm telling my graduate students, because mm -hmm. it's, you know, sort of out in the field at large. It's not kind of something that happened at within their home institution. Although I bet it's the same people probably doing it both ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tough. Yeah. Sorry, we're going to keep well, chit-chat. Well, really I, <laughs> It was a we happy like story for me the, about what yeah. happened in the last two weeks. But yeah, it's a no, serious I'm, topic. I'm really, glad, I'm, I'm really glad you not only feel but said that you're happy about it. I feel like it is like I'm – yeah, I, I think, you know, the – like it's good to sort of view reporting and talking about these things as like – I mean, maybe not a positive experience. That's kind of weird, but like, it should be a good thing. Yeah, right. For some people, people in some cases, and I mean, action. in my case, it was just ass grabbing and didn't go further than that. Um, but what, it was interesting because the person asked me how what impact it had on me, which was a really interesting question to reflect on. Like, <laughs> who knows? You know, there's I could speculate a lot about whether my behavior at conferences changed because of that or things like that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, should but we... how have uh, you been, Sanjay? <laughs> yeah, how was your oh, week? <laughs> my week's been good. Um, yeah, I... Uh, um, so right now I'm reading Harry Potter 4 with my son, The Goblet of Fire. And I had this interesting experience a couple nights ago where... So first of all, I, he, my son is seven years old. And one of the awesome things about having a kid this age is you get to do all these fun things that you actually enjoy, but that you wouldn't necessarily do. So like I get to play with Legos and things like that, that I wouldn't as just a grown man sort of think to do. And so reading Harry Potter is one of those things. Um, and I'm reading it out loud to him and we just got so spoilers. If you haven't read, if you're like the one person in the world who hasn't read Harry I Potter, I haven't because you know, it's too me. scary. There, okay, all right, there you what? go. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to spoil you guys a little bit. So we're reading The Goblet of Fire, which is where it starts to... It, 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 like, each book gets substantially sort of more grown up and mature, right? And, I wouldn't know and my son is sort is of, too scary. Yeah, my son's sort of on the edge of being able to, to handle it, which is fine. In fact, I was hesitant, but he was really pushing hard to read it. But um, So we just read this very intense chapter. Um, people listening who've read it, it's the, the chapter where... Harry is sort of through this magical device kind of witnessing uh, um, these trials of uh, wizards who uh, um, sort of helped the bad guy in the story, Voldemort, right? And there's this really intense scene where a, a character who's this kind of hard-bitten prosecutor in the magic world is prosecuting his own son for crimes that it appears his son didn't commit and the, and the and pushing for this awful punishment for him 
And then there's, in the same chapter, there's a story about how a character that we've gotten to know, his parents were tortured until they went insane and now don't even recognize their own child. So I'm reading this and I'm feeling very intense. Like I'm sitting there reading to my son this story about a man who's being cruel to his son and then a story about parents who like can't interact with their son anymore um, because they've been driven insane and and it's really intense for me and my you know my son is sitting there and he's kind of snuggled up against me whatever and that night he you know he went to bed and and he kind of called us back in and he said I'm you know I'm scared because of Harry Potter can I come sleep in your bed and we're like totally fine whatever so I you know the next morning I'm like I need to talk to him about this I'm like so what was it that was scary about that chapter and he's like Oh, because Voldemort's coming back. It was like nothing to do with any of the things that were scaring me. It was like just because the the main bad guy, you could kind of tell he's about to come back. And I was like, for me as a parent, like all these sort of grown-up themes about, you know, yeah, these parent-child rifts and awful things happening to people and torture and whatever. That was what was – and for me, it's just like, oh, no, the really nasty bad guy is coming back. Mm -hmm. And I kind of talked to him. I was like – so there was this other stuff going on, and this was what was upsetting to me. And he sort of looked at me like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, you you do you, Dad. That's, <laughs> that scares you, but uh, I'm just, you know, the scary bad guy with the snakes. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that was – it is kind of interesting that just, you know – I think that's one of the cool things about the books is that they work, especially at this point in the series, they work on all these different levels mm-hmm. to where, you know, a seven-year-old – is getting very different things, not very different, but different things than, you know, a a 40-something-year-old, but we're both enjoying them. Plus, J.K. Rowling is pretty good on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys, I'm so surprised neither of you have read Harry Potter. I just figure everybody read it (laughs) at some point. I I guess we're all a little on the old side to have read it. I haven't read most things. It's not really specific to Harry Potter. All right. Well, let's. Why don't we do our letter? Let's uh, let's read our letter of the week because I, uh, I think this is another good one. Okay. Um, this is sort of a two-part letter. All right. So it starts, dear Black Goat Pod. Uh, one, what value, if any, do various association, service, and leadership activities have on the job market, and/or with regard to tenure review? And two, a related question: um, Can involvement in certain associations harm or count against a candidate? e.g. a person with APS involvement applying to a department of APA members or vice versa. Thank you, Anonymous. Yeah, so this is this is coming from the perspective, obviously, of an early career person. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, I, I guess as a general thing, as a starting point, I'd say that I think earlier in your career, service is kind of like a cool bonus, but it's not... I don't know when, when, I mean, I'm, I'm in knee deep in reading applications right now because we have a, a search this year and I'm, I'm not paying super close attention at we're at the early cutting stage. Like I'm not really looking all that much at people's sort of service activities. This is an assistant professor position. Um, I think sort of later on, like when things are close, those are the kinds of things that maybe if it's like a toss up and you're like, oh, but this person's shown leadership, I think that's where it can matter. So I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't count. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like service counts a lot more later on in your career, or relatively speaking. It you know um, when you're up for full professor, you're supposed to sort of show that you're showing leadership in your field, that you're contributing. At least at my university, contributing in university leadership as well as external. But I feel like for assistant professor jobs, um, 
it's not as much. But what do you guys, what's your experience been? I, I mean, my guess would be that being involved in associations um, would have more of a benefit just through sort of like building a network for yourself than it would be for like actually having that as a line on your CV. Um, so I think, I mean, I hate, I hate the term networking, but I think one, one way to sort of network is to develop like a group of colleagues, especially colleagues that are, you know, at the same stage as you, that you're sort of going to, um, work with throughout your career. And I think being involved in associations is a way to do that. Um, yeah, especially to the degree that associations are, um, and committees within associations are aligned with different research interests, right? Um, but I I know that I've never looked at somebody's application and really considered their – if they are if they do a lot of service, maybe that would stand out a little bit to me. But, um, In a positive definitely way? Definitely not there. Yeah. Um, but definitely not like being a member of different organizations. I wouldn't notice that. I think if they do a lot of service, it could be negative. I mean, besides the time it takes, but – you know, just like sometimes when I look at grad student applicants, if they have a 4.0 GPA, I think, well, okay, they're focused a lot on their schoolwork, but that's not necessarily the right focus or whatever. So if they're doing a lot of kinds of service that aren't really benefiting their own development as an indiv- as a researcher or as a teacher or whatever, I would be a little bit worried about how they choose to spend their time because it's not really a common thing for grad students to do a ton of service. Um, so I, just to be really, really blunt, I think I might wonder, like, do they not enjoy the other parts of their job and they're throwing themselves into these service jobs? And it also depends. So not all service is created equal. I totally agree with like the leadership kinds of service. I think those are much more informative for your, for people evaluating you as a job candidate or for tenure. If you've been appointed to editorial boards or you've been asked to take on responsibilities that are significant or important that really show a trust in your judgment and leadership and so on. That says a lot more than like you helped proofread some stuff because the society needed people to proofread something, which is a really valuable service to the field. And, but you, it doesn't speak to your leadership abilities or um, your reputation in the field or things like that. But, but using that as an indicator of like somebody not maybe having their priorities straight or whatever. I mean, aren't, aren't there, isn't their record in these other areas a better indicator of that anyways? So if somebody's yeah, doing well with true. their research and well with their teaching, then you're not going to like... That's true. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like sometimes... I don't know. I'm curious, I mean, because you, you, know, you, you said it sort of says that. I, I feel like sometimes I see it being brought up sort of as an after-the-fact explanation, kind That's of the true. way you're describing Alexa. Right. They, they don't have a strong re, you know, research record so they wouldn't have been competitive anyway but right. then you say oh it's because they did all this service but it, it's no, kind of yeah, like true. if they had done the service but had a strong research record you wouldn't, you wouldn't be saying that's that. absolutely true yeah. i wouldn't be saying that for sure yeah. and i also want to say i recognize that this is gendered and related to being an underrepresented minority and things like that you just get asked to do a lot more service and so i yeah. i try to be sensitive to that that like it's not necessarily the person chose to do all these things so yeah and and you're right that if they have a strong record on the other dimensions i'm definitely not gonna take the service as a sign that they may not be strong in those other areas yeah um, but yeah alexa i think your point was a good one which is the the value is probably not in having the the thing on your vita to say that you've done but that if if it's going to be a good experience and I, i've definitely seen this uh you know from like 
graduate students, you know, thing, service like associations that I'm involved with and the graduate students who are especially in more leadership positions in those, like I get to know them and uh, I'm almost always impressed by them because the people that end up in those roles are usually, you know, they get elected by their peers or some other way. Um, and and oftentimes I, I end up finding about their finding out about their research because you know it's like we're at these board meetings together or whatever and and it comes up in conversation. So that networking element I think is relevant that it just makes you more visible and visibility is kind of like an amplifier. But typically the people have gotten there because it's gonna there are good things that are going to be amplified. And then I think also like it's a it can be a good learning experience. Um, you know, so if you're a graduate student thinking about service, thinking about things, I mean, one thing that I always encourage grad students to do, even though it's a lot of work, is to be a, a rep on a search committee. Mm-hmm. This is different. The, the person that wrote to us is writing about associations. But that that's a chance you really learn you know, how these decisions get made and what matters and what doesn't. Um, and I, I think being involved in associations, you know, you it it's not going to be as directly relevant to getting a job exactly, but you learn how the academic world works. You can have conversations with people about the profession. You can, you know, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of things that you can get out of it, um, provided right. that it's not so much work that it's taking away from other things that you should be doing. Right. Like when I... I think there's some overlap with going to like summer institutes and stuff like that. Um, so maybe that line on a CV will mean something to people, but probably not a whole lot. Um, but then those institutes can be really important for you and influential for you in terms of, you know, like making friends that you'll have. So, I mean, like I know that my instructors at, um, what is it now? Sis. SIP, SIS, (laughs) the Summer Institute for Social and Personality Psychology. My instructors taught me nothing. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I made good Uh, friends there. (laughs) Regular listeners will get that reference. I'm imagining someone listening for the first time going, who's she dissing? (laughs) Samin was her summer instructor. But she's also my friend. Um, It was like a insult and a compliment at the same time. So she managed to so salvage something out of part? it. Yeah, the second part the I second think is interesting. Like, I don't think anybody would count against someone that they were involved with the quote-unquote wrong associations. I think, you know, any professional society of, of scientists or whatever is we we have so much more in common than we do that distinguishes us from each other. Like the probably the most like antagonistic relationship is APA and APS. And even that, I think they work together all the time. And, you know... And also, we wouldn't hold a graduate student or assistant professor responsible for the way, the like subtle ways in which societies might be taking different approaches. And I mean, some of them are not so subtle, but yeah. we wouldn't, I don't think we would hold an early career person accountable for like, well, why did you choose to get involved in this society? We know that it's not like you can just call up any society and be like, you're my favorite society. I want to get involved. So you might have just taken the opportunities that came to you and you know, all societies have at least a part of their mission that's shared across the the societies, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the example that the letter writer used was APA-APS, and that, that's one where it's really hard for me to imagine there being any issues. I'm trying to think of cases. I mean, one of the things that your society memberships or participation do is they kind of signal what boxes to put you in they signal things about your approach and so i i could probably imagine some cases where 
you know, um, they might signal things that are true about you that might be, you know, in some theoretical circumstances. So, you know, like in the clinical world, if you were, you know, in a society that's more kind of signaling your clinical science approach, um, that says something, but you probably want to, that's probably something you're trying to signal other ways anyway. Or like being an ARP member signals that you're pretty actively a personality psychologist. And if you're applying to a social job where they don't like personality psychologists, but again, that's that's probably only going to be reinforcing things that are going to be pretty obvious everywhere else. So it's hard to imagine that those society and, and you know, and that's just like that's their preference. They they want this and not that. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there's like the rivalries. It's more just like it's going to say something about you, but it's probably going to be saying something accurate for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very hard for me to imagine a situation where I would um, it would. Yeah, it would count against someone. But I can think of situations where it would count for someone. So like in situations like you're describing, Sajay, if you're like are looking for somebody in a particular area and their, you know, their association membership suggests that they really are in that area or that like they make a point to go to that conference. Um, and like, for instance, like if somebody was a, a member at um, at SIPS and went to the conference, that would I would notice that, too. I would think that that might be a priority for them, you know. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, right. Like I could probably cook up some scenario where that might work against somebody, but it's really hard to imagine that actually happening. I think. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, I hope, I hope we answered anonymous's letter. Um, and so to our listeners, if you're listening and you want to email us a letter for us to maybe respond to, our email address is letters at the blackgoatpodcast.com. And uh, yeah, we always like to sort of thank our listeners uh, for listening, um, for sending us letters, giving us feedback. We've had some interesting email exchanges with people. Uh, um, sometimes we end up talking about them on the episode, sometimes not. You know, sometimes uh, we're not able to respond to emails, although that's, uh, you know, we, we, we're we not so big that that's like an issue and we certainly try to. Um, so thanks to everyone. Uh, it, it is really interesting. Like, you know, we started this podcast, I guess, about half a year ago and just having conversations with people who've listened to us, whether it's conversations electronically or in person, it's kind of cool um, to hear what people think is is going on. Um, if you're listening and you want to rate us on iTunes, that's cool because that helps people find out about us. Um, and if you, if you want to be part of our greater social media sphere, (laughs) we are, you can find us. Our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, our Twitter is at blackgoatpod. We've got a Facebook page. If you just type black goat podcast into the search bar, you'll find us. And yeah, thanks everybody who listens. All right, let's talk about our main topic today. So we wanted to talk about teaching as a part of professional identity. And I think this is actually um, something I hope we would have thought of anyway, but we had an interesting email exchange sort of related to something where, you know, someone kind of suggested that we had sort of an R1 focus about a particular issue. And I think this is something where it's probably helpful to, and useful to point out at the beginning we're going to be talking about our personal experiences about teaching and we're all three of us at 
sort of research universities with doctorate granting programs. Um, we're all at public universities. That might end up being relevant too, although Samin has been a professor at a private. Um, but yeah, we kind of wanted to talk today about sort of how teaching is a part of our professional identities, because I think actually very specific to that experience, a lot of times research universities, they put research in the designation, right? It's the, in the category name. Um, teaching kind of occupies this interesting place where it's an important part of what we do, but it's it's often viewed as sort of uh, institutionally as kind of second priority or whatever. And so how, do, how does that sort of fit into the overall picture of what you do? I, think is kind of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, I, I, I want to start with something, maybe Alexa asking you to talk about something you're doing, which is really unusual and super cool, um, which is that you recently started teaching in another kind of institution. Yeah. So, um, so actually to your first point about, you know, like it being part of a, your professional identity, when I started my job at Alabama, I really had almost no teaching experience and I didn't even know really whether I liked teaching and teaching has become a pretty big part of my identity. I actually find that on like a, a daily basis, I find it easier to find meaning in teaching than in other aspects of my job sometimes. So uh, teaching has become pretty important to me. Um, and um, yeah, so so I've been at Alabama. This is my sixth year now, um, and so I th I feel like I'd sort of like gotten gotten the hang of it, and I felt like you know I learned the ropes. But I recently started teaching with um, this program called the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project, um, and so basically the program, as as it sounds like, uh, they get uh, college professors um, and sometimes graduate students to teach college style classes at prisons in Alabama. Um, so I'm doing that for the first time this semester and I'm teaching basically an introductory psychology class, although it's called, um, the science of the brain. Um, partly because I guess there are some concerns that an intro psychology class will teach a lot of manipulation techniques or something like that. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's, so I'm teaching that class at the same time as I'm teaching, like a pedagogy class within the department. And so doing the two things at once has been interesting because I really, like I feel like a new teacher in the context of the prison. Um, and I feel like I'm going through the process of sort of like getting comfortable and understanding like what, um, what, what an appropriate way to interact with students is because it's such a different environment. Um, and also how to actually teach the material the best way possible, because I don't have the same resources that I would have teaching. The way that I would teach an intro psych class at Alabama is, you know, the way that a typical typical class would go. Like, it's a big class. It can be like 200 or 400 students. I have slides. You know, I lecture, and then um, I show them videos, and then I give them exams. And I basically can't do most of those things at the prison. So I don't have a projector or slides um, they don't get grades. Um, so they get, they can get feedback, but they don't like take exams the way that students typically would, um, in a regular one-on-one -on -one class. So I have to teach differently. Um, so I feel like I'm becoming this, I feel like a new teacher in this context also as I'm, um, teaching this pedagogy class. So it's kind of fun to like go through the process with them. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to t tell one story, um, about that I think sort of like, characterizes the um 
the feeling of like newness and not quite knowing how to interact appropriately and stuff like that. So, and also, also the like excitement of being, um, in this program. So I was teaching, uh, the other day about sensation and perception. Um, and a, a separate issue that I've been thinking about is what I should be focusing on. I feel sometimes some pressure to focus on things that would be most relevant to my students, but uh, for the most part, I haven't actually done that. I've sort of taught what I would teach in a typical class. Um, and so I was talking about sensation and perception, and I was making the distinction between um, bottom-up and top-down processing. So, you know, top-down being like processing things through the lens of your past experience and expectations, and bottom-up being more like processing information like a computer would. Um, and, you know, there are connections between this and things like stereotyping, but I don't think that connection is always very obvious, um, at least to introductory psych students. Um, so I used, because we're talking about sensation and perception, I showed the students a visual illusion, which I did by printing off a visual illusion on a bunch of pieces of paper and handing them to them. Um, and the illusion that I used might be familiar to some people. So it's, it looks like a checkerboard and there's a green cylinder on the checkerboard. Um, like sort of protruding upwards from the checkerboard. Um, and there are these two squares labeled A and B. Um, and the f like features of the image, including a shadow cast by the cylinder, make it look like A and B. So make it look like one square is much darker than the other. Um, but in fact, they're, the squares are exactly the same color. It's a really powerful illusion. Um, and so I was using this as an illustration of top-down processing and some of the students were like, no way, those squares are different colors. And I was like, let me show you. Like, I'm going to rip apart the image and then, like, rip these two little squares out and show you that they're the same color. And so I'm doing this. And then one of my students off to the side was like, here, do you want to use these ones? And he has these little squares that are perfectly cut out from the checkerboard. So, like, perfect straight lines. And I was like, how did you do that? <laughs> and then he holds up a razor blade. <laughs> <laughs> and I like I mean I guess like I looked pretty surprised that this dude had a razor blade um, and then so there's always an officer um, in the class with me and the officer was like don't worry I let him use it <laughs> <laughs> and then so I was like okay cool I guess um, and then there's a student at the well, back of the class. well he was using it so constructively he was helping you it was great no it was really great um and then there was this dude at the back of the classroom that was like, I feel like you're using top-down processing right now. You're just assuming that because he's a prisoner, you should be scared of him because he's holding his razor <laughs> And I was like, you guys are doing a great job. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So, yeah, it's, it's really fun. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm still, like, trying to figure out what's, what's appropriate and what's not. <laughs> so, I mean, the... The decision, your decision, Alexa, to, to do this, and you, you know, you talked about like you went from never having taught and not being sure what what I was even about to like looking for this opportunity to and sort of like you know this is not something you have to do as part of your job, right? This is like volunteer yeah. work. Yeah, like how what was like what was that decision like, or what was that you know sort of yeah. I mean, like why, why, why did you do it? <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess like a couple of reasons, the, the most obvious reason is just that like that opportunity was available to me. So, yeah. um, I know other people who have taught as part of this program. And as soon as I heard about it, I 
like I tried to get on the list of teachers in the program as soon as I could. But I, I guess I feel like, um, my, my life is, uh, really easy and really good. And this was like, I think one of the things that I'm capable of doing to help other people, the list is very limited. And one of them is teaching, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. and so this was like such a clear opportunity to teach something in a way that would like benefit people and sort of like, I don't, I don't know how to say this in a non cheesy way, but like sort of give back because I feel like, you know, I have been afforded all of these opportunities and I've had all of these advantages. And this is just like a, you know, a crystal clear opportunity where I have a chance to, um, to use, uh, that all of those advantages to, to do something that I think is valuable. Um, so that was, I mean, it was a no brainer for me when I realized that this was like, you know, a possibility. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting about that to me is like, you, you, you said you're trying not to be cheesy you know, there are all these like kind of highfalutin things we say about teaching, you know, that are sort of cliches. And, you know, I suspect that like there's a fair number of, of people who they just teach because they have to. And, and even some I think there there are some people that I know that are very excellent teachers who are excellent teachers because they're just good at things and, and they kind of have the skill set. But if you if you gave them the choice, if you said, look, you could, you know, have 10 or 20 extra hours a week to work on your research and not teach, they'd pick that. Um, and and mm-hmm. they're just doing it because it's their job. And so it's sort of funny that these like kind of, but you know, we'll sort of talk in these flowery romantic terms about teaching as a way to uplift young minds mm-hmm. and all these other things. Um, and, and, but you actually did that, Alexa, because <laughs> nobody, nobody made you do that. And, and yeah, like you've probably, you know, um, there's all kinds of other ways that you could have and and probably do do volunteer work or do other things, right? But this was a like you saw like you have the skill set of teaching and you saw this opportunity and you you actually believed all the bullshit that we tell ourselves <laughs> about you know, the teaching yeah. the value of teaching. I will um, say that like yeah. um, so teaching in the context of a prison. I had heard this and this is also my experience. Um, I think that you know the the proximal reward for doing it is maybe a lot stronger than teaching the average undergraduate class. So, you know, I think it's a little bit easy to get, um, become jaded teaching undergraduate students. And I, I try to resist that urge, but, you know, often you're dealing with students who are like on their phones or they're like online shopping while they're, or they're like parents are paying for their entire education and they don't really care to be there and they wish that they were somewhere else or they don't even come to class and things like that. Um, and like teaching in this environment, you get this like immediate reward of like people who, um, are really, really only there voluntarily. Right. Like they, they, they basically in, in this case, in my case specifically, the students, um, they get, they get these things called continuing education credits that matter within the institution, but it's not, they don't get college credit. Although there are, are some programs that are part of the program that I'm in that do get college credit. Um, but yeah, these students are there because like, that's how they want to be spending their time. Um, Mm -hmm. and they, they don't have phones. (laughs) They're just (laughs) sitting there. They're listening to you. No online shopping. Yeah. Yeah. And they want, they want to be 
like they want to be in the class. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting how like in some ways it's so different, but in other ways it's just sort of like pulling out these kind of, yeah, from both the sort of, you know, your reasons for being there kind of uh, have less other stuff going on than the kind of romantic story we tell, but also their reasons in a way, right? Like there, there's, it sounds like there's a lot of intrinsic motivation because they, you know, yeah, they're, they're not getting other things out of it. Um, yeah. Samin, did you start off uh, wanting to, uh, <laughs> I, you know, Alexis sort of yeah. had this huge arc from, like, I don't even know what teaching is about to sort like, of looking for chances to do it. Yeah, my narrative is how to make the most out of teaching when you're not a natural. <laughs> like, I feel like Alexa <laughs> definitely is a natural and, like, has, you know, a lot of skills and personality traits that are really conducive to being a good teacher, and I don't. And I, I've always found teaching... Something so I I went from something I might call something close to dread <laughs> towards teaching to now so now I like it I, if you gave me the choice if you said you could have those fifteen hours a week back I would probably take them um, but I do like it and the other thing is philosophers have this thing they call second order desires I don't want to like teaching but I do like I, I'm happier when I'm teaching so I don't want to teach or I don't yeah I'm confusing myself now but I feel like I have the second order desire I don't want to like to teach but I do like to teach so this is weird identity where like I still think of myself mm-hmm. as primarily a researcher I don't think of teaching as a big part of that's not really how I help people like I think I do more good for the society through editing and reviewing and maybe my blog or whatever um but then I actually do feel like I've accomplished something and I'm doing something good at, right after I've taught, which is weird because yeah, it doesn't exactly fit with my identity. But I think the way the way I got to this point, and it wasn't easy, and you know, I've been teaching, so I got my PhD in 2006. I taught, I taught a little bit as a grad student, but it's been a while. And the way I got to this point is, and this is more like a narrative I tell looking back on it. I wasn't that aware of it. But if I think about, okay, what, what do I think I'm good at? And partly this is, you know, I'm an introvert public speaking, like teaching to a class of 200 isn't my idea of fun, but I do really like sitting behind a computer and critiquing a paper, which is why I do a lot of reviewing and editing. So then I thought, well, what's the closest thing I can do to teaching people how to do that? And it's teaching research methods, even, even at the first year undergrad level, which is what I do. Um, so I get to go, you know, right. I'm teaching research methods right now. I have two classes of 200 students and I teach them exactly the kinds of things I'm thinking about when I'm reviewing a paper. So like what's the validity of each measure? How did they operationalize their variables? They didn't have representative sample. Is that okay? What are the consequences of that? And it's really fun because I'm talking about the things I do think of myself as being good at. Um, and that's like what I do have to contribute to society. So I've actually gotten Mm -hmm. really, really into it and it feels more important and meaningful than when I've taught other classes. So I think for me, and maybe this is, I think this is like a good recommendation in general for people who feel like they don't have the skills or the personality that make them a naturally good teacher is like, think about what you think you are naturally good at and then try to get opportunities to teach that. And maybe it's writing, maybe it's critique, critical thinking, maybe it's you, you're really passionate about the sub- substantive area and you can teach a specialized course in that area. Um, but I think there are ways, even if you're not a natural, to bring the skills and, and abilities that you have and help other people through that. 
Um, and especially I think in these days of like fake news and stuff like that, to me, teaching critical thinking, teaching people how to not just go with authority or with, you know, their gut feeling or whatever, but actually try to be a little bit more objective, try to ask questions about the, the rigor and the robustness of the evidence and so on is really, um, it feels easier to explain to them why that's important. I pull things from the news every week and it's really easy to find examples of like, misrepresentations of science for political aims or things like that mm. yeah what's your story sanjay so you know i when i was in graduate school we in my program graduate students didn't do any teaching except there was a special and it was a university policy at the time that like graduate students don't teach their own courses but there was a special dispensation made for an intro to psych course for non-majors that was supposed to be kind of a mentored teaching opportunity for, for graduate students. Although I literally never met with my mentor once the whole time. It just turned into this thing of like, we'll just turn the grad students loose and have them teach. So I, I got to teach an intro to psych class in graduate school. And I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was, you know, doing it for the first time. was It was kind of an interesting... I think there, there's different elements of it that come together. And, and so over the years, I've kind of, I think it was just, at the time, it was sort of like, oh, teaching seems interesting. I want to try it. I've enjoyed being in classes. I think it would be fun to try to do. And I, I think I've gotten more kind of specific ideas about both how I approach teaching, but also just personally for me, like how I, where I get my own sort of sense of satisfaction, value out of it, and what I think I can do that's valuable in it. So, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about teaching is trying to trying to figure out just the, the basic questions of, like, what should people know, which is sounds sort of obvious, right? But, you know, you what should people know and then how how to sort of like, yeah, I mean, so, so an example right now, I'm teaching structural equation modeling. And a lot of it is like I was actually mostly self-taught in structural equation modeling. So I took a, a like had a little bit at the end of a course in graduate school in a workshop, but a lot of it was I had to figure stuff out. And so a lot of my own teaching is sort of, um, I look at other people's materials and I look at sort of how things are kind of typically presented, but then I, I kind of, it's a chance for me to reflect on my own personal experiences of like what are the things that I stumbled over and what are the moments that I actually had a breakthrough when I finally understood something. Um, and then also my own experiences from having I've taught this course a bunch of times before and sort of looking, trying to figure out what will give that breakthrough moment. Um, and and that's, to me, that's a really enjoyable thing to try to figure out. Um, and, and then, like, how, how, like, so what was the actual conceptual thing that, like, made me understand something important about this? And then how do I, how, and then the second question is how do I try to produce that in the classroom? And And that is... Very, because I teach an intro to psych class that's 500 students, and I teach you know graduate seminars that are like a dozen or or, or something like that, and and it's such a different challenge in those different settings. So like in in my graduate seminar, I have no idea if this worked by the way. <laughs> we were, I, I tried something new this year uh, in my SEM class where um, we we're talking about maximum likelihood, and I kind of I wanted them to have an intuitive sense of what maximum likelihood is, which sounds really hard, and I think it is. Um, so I had them play rock, paper, scissors, and then, you know, calculate 
the likelihood of their win-loss record under different hypotheses of how good a rock, paper, scissors player you are. Um, and it was just like, I was just trying, you know, I, I, I don't know if it went over well or poorly. The students kind of seemed to get it, but like it was, it was just, it was a challenge for me to think like, okay, this is, it's really important to have some like sense of, aside from like being able to crunch through the math, which I don't teach a super math heavy class, but having a like a sense for how this works so that when you're actually using it and the software is doing all the math for you, you'll have some sense of what it's doing and why. Um, and so that's like at one end of the extreme. And then the other is like in my intro to psych class, it's a performance. And I, I think I've, I've come to be very comfortable with saying mm -hmm. it's you're putting on a show. And that sounds kind of cheesy. And that also sounds like not very intellectual. But it's like if you're standing in front of 500 people and trying to get them to pay attention to something for an hour and a half, um, you're putting on a performance. And, and I've sort of... And it's obviously, it's, an, uh, it's not just entertainment, but a lot of things we say are just entertainment aren't just entertainment anyway. Um, and so the puzzle of, like, how do I perform for an hour and a half in a, like, informative way, mm -hmm. to me, that's such an interesting... And I, I kind of... I, I get exhausted when I teach those classes. Like, the last time I taught it, it was in the middle of the day. It was noon to, like, 1.40 or something. And it just... just and it was twice a week. And it destroyed those two days like I was I got nothing else done those two days a week it really slowed me down because it was like I spent all morning thinking about and, and even if I was like fully prepped you know I just couldn't stop fiddling and thinking and then I'd put on a show for two hours and then I would just be wrecked mm -hmm. afterwards I would I would just be like in this weird like not it, some of it was physical like my body actually felt tired, mm -hmm. but some of it was just like I just needed to come down. Um, I needed to like, and I, it wasn't nervousness exactly because I don't get, I get a little bit of jitters, but I don't get super like in that sense of like butterflies in my stomach, which I used to before I taught um, or gave talks. But it was just there's something about it that it's like your body's on high alert and you're physically exhausted afterwards. I have my two um, sections. In a way that my small classes aren't. Yeah. yeah. I have my two big sections back to back. So it's three hours straight. And then one day a week I have my lab meeting with my undergrads right after. So it's four hours straight. And I feel like I'm going to die at the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually I yeah. go eat curly fries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, I think it, it, you know, the, I mean, that, there's something really like in the larger scheme of things, I wish I had had more time in the week <laughs> left over to do the other things. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed the kind of if, if that if I if that was like the only thing I was doing um, and it wasn't sort of taking away from other things. Like I think the sort of that kind of engagement and standing up there and, and trying to like hold you know, well, it wasn't 500 people because they don't fucking show up. So like 250 yeah. people's attention for two hours. Um, uh, and, and that sort of interactive element where you're trying to read the room, like are people getting what I'm talking about? Um, and, and obviously like good teaching, you also explicitly ask that and you incorporate things, but there's definitely a part of it that's sort of, you know, you're, you're trying to read a live audience, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, apart from sort of like explicit concept checks and things like that. What about, so I, I, yeah. So one thing Go I ahead. struggle with, with big classes is like, I feel like 
it would go over better and it would be easier to keep their attention if they like could humanize me a little bit if they knew a little bit more about me so i'll Mm -hmm. like tell stories about my dog or whatever Mm -hmm. but like how do you guys handle that because you could obviously be too self-disclosing but so how do you balance the like making a connection with your students when when they're there's a lot of them and you can't get to know them individually i i do i i'm pretty disclosing in in my teaching and i don't i don't think you have to be i think that's something that works for me um so i've talked about having been depressed Mm -hmm. in my class and i've talked about being a cancer survivor Mm -hmm. um i also it's uh tell funny stories too it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know i i have a i have a like a stock story about uh my son when he was a baby uh, what, when I do operant conditioning, that like it's a, it's got a setup and a punchline, mm-hmm. and the you know the the setup is that I thought I was operant conditioning him, and the punchline is I realized he was conditioning me mm-hmm. with his crying, and you know, mm-hmm. anyway, I've got so I you know it's I, but it's like it's a story about my kid, and I can talk about it in a way that sort of humanizes me because I like, you know, and I also I I swear a fair amount in mm-hmm. the classroom, and I uh, probably more than I should. Um, swearing itself just sort of grabs people's attention. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways it's kind of a cheap trick, but I, I sort of I often use it, works it well. when I'm sharing it as a personal reaction to something. Mm-hmm. So like, um, uh, you know, the, the other like the other day in SEM class, you know, I was talking about like error messages, and I was like, well, it's kind of you know the computer sometimes says this, but you know, it's basically saying fuck you, buddy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's what my computer says to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it, you know. So, so like little moments like that where I'm just sort of like sharing like my frustration at a mm-hmm. covariance matrix mm-hmm. being non-positive definite or whatever, yeah. as well as like these kind of big stories. I, I, for me, like I feel like that's one way that in a class of 500 people, people can feel, or 250 you show up, that, that people can feel like the thing that I can't do that I could do in a small class, which is actually have conversations mm-hmm. with people that go back and forth. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a you know and and my hope is that i'm not doing and i try to be self-aware that i'm not doing it in a self-indulgent way or in a sort of look at me way um that i'm trying to use it in a way that i hope will help them feel connected in a way that'll foster their interest in coming to class and caring about the material so I'm, i'm trying to be mindful of using it for something that's not just my own gratification or, or mm-hmm. narcissism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do yeah. you guys, how much self-disclosure do you guys do? I think I don't do that. I don't, I don't do that much self-disclosure. Like I don't talk about my personal life very much. Um, but I do, yeah, I do tell them stories about myself in order to get them to relate to me more. So like we, when we talk about, dreams i tell them about like dreams that i've had and i tell them about my like when we talk about phobias i tell them about my phobia of moths um, that's interesting i think uh, my problem the... oh good uh i was just gonna say one one other thing that i think i do that makes me maybe more accessible to them and allows them to get to know me better even though we're not having a conversation is that so i do review sessions that are structured usually as like trivia or jeopardy or something like that but i put like random questions in there that have nothing to do with their class um and they usually reveal a lot about me like i put like you know like how how many times does taylor swift say shake it off in that song (laughs) um so like like then they like learn something about like my music preferences and like 
I don't know. Yeah, I think that it makes them um, take me less seriously. Yeah. I think my problem is that even under the best of circumstances where I can have like one-on-one conversations with people, it takes people more than 10 weeks to start seeing me as a real human being. (laughs) 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 So I need to figure out how to like speed up the process of people getting to know me because I feel like... That's not true. You're different. I think you're different. No, you just draw that out in people. You get people to like tell you their deepest, darkest secrets in 10 minutes. But like Sanjay, like we knew each other for years and I don't think that we really got to know each other very quickly. I think. Oh, well, especially me getting on you because I talk about myself all the time, no. probably. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I just don't so do think you guys... to like, put myself out there. And that's something I have to, especially quarters, only 10 weeks. And you know, I'm not going to get to know yeah. my students. So I have to just take a plunge and be a little bit more open with them and let them get to know me. Yeah. Do you get, so beyond sort of, I think this is even a step beyond self disclosure. I'm curious, do you guys um, talk about, this is going to sound really weird, but let me, I'll follow it up with a sort of specific example. Like, do you talk about your feelings towards your students? Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, yeah, that sounds weird. like I, yeah, it does. It totally sounds weird. Um, I always just say that, when I have crushes on students to just get it out in the open. Yeah. So, so I, I've, I've done more and more of this in, in recent years is to, to try to, signal and sometimes explicitly say that I care about my students. Mm. Um, So I, you know, that I care about their experiences in the classroom, that I care about them learning, that I care about them feeling like they belong and are welcome, um, uh, that I, you know, care about their learning, that I care if something is personal for them. I mean, I don't do it it all all the time. That would be weird and creepy. But uh, um, I... I didn't used to do that, and I've started doing it some, and it's a weird thing to be saying it to a room of hundreds of people, like, I care about you, because it, I feel like it could very easily be inauthentic, and I try to, but what I, what I find is that if, if I do it in the right way, first of all, it, it I've realized that I actually do care, <laughs> so I'm not just saying yeah. it. And it, it, for me, it reminds me uh, that I care. But I, I also, yeah, I mean, it it feels like it um, it helps students understand why. Like, I, I'll sometimes do it in the context of, like, like, the reason I'm not, you know, the reason I'm making you take a cumulative final is mm-hmm. I care about whether you remember this stuff a year from now and there's this literature on testing and spacing effects, blah, blah, blah. So sometimes I'll do it that way. Sometimes I'll do it just in a more like, when we're talking about a controversial topic, I'll say like, we're going to talk about racism today. And I just want to say at the outset that I know that some of you have personally experienced this in very painful ways. And that, uh, you know, I just want you to know that I I know that that's going on in this room. Um, Mm -hmm. So things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you guys... Yeah. yeah, sort of do things that kind of express I mean, affection not, or warmth towards your students. I don't do it when I have hundreds of students, but with smaller classes or with my research assistants where I have, I still have dozens, but not hundreds. I tell them, one thing I try to convey to them is like, we want, we want to get to know them when we can. And we want to get to know the people who think they have no particular thing to offer or no reason to come to our office hours, because otherwise most of our interactions are only when something goes wrong. And it's really rewarding and fulfilling for us to also get to know them when nothing's going wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something I sometimes try to convey to them is that they don't have to have a particular problem or issue to come to office hours or come talk to me. I'd like to get to know them 
anyway. And in fact, my life is better if I get to know not just mm-hmm. the people when there are problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because there are also, I mean, it is true. There are people in, in a class of 400, there are going to be people who try to take advantage or whatever. So, and I think yeah. especially maybe as a woman, like I have to, I don't want to, I do want them to know that I care about them. And I also want them to know that I'm not a pushover. Maybe I have right. to, maybe I, I worry too much about the latter mm-hmm. and I can, I could be a little bit more focused on the former. Yeah. I think there's no, a... I, I absolutely, yeah, it's totally, this may be something, some of it may be my personality and just things I can play off, but some of it absolutely could be gender that I'm, I may be able to, on the one hand, maybe I have to say that, maybe they're mm-hmm. assuming that about women, mm-hmm. I don't know, but also I can probably like get away with students assuming that there'll be barriers that they might not assume there would be with a woman, so mm-hmm. it's a little easier for me to... Yeah. I don't know, be vulnerable or, but I mean, Alexa, you, the story you told about the, the student, um, who was like, oh, you're just, you know, stereotyping yeah. us like about the razor or whatever. Like when, I don't know, when you took, when you told us that story, you were laughing at yourself. Yeah. And I think laughing at yourself is a way to be vulnerable and is, you're not explicitly saying, but it's like, you're sort of validating a student who's like in a, in a joking way, but they were they were kind of challenging you for your stereotypes, and and you you decided to validate them instead of defending yourself. Like that's a vulnerable <laughs> yeah. moment, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the biggest things that determine whether people enjoy teaching is like their feeling about whether students like them, and I think a big part of whether students like you is whether they think that you like them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, I think yeah, there's a reason that like rock stars always say like, yeah, Birmingham, Alabama is our favorite place. to perform. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I should go into my class and be like, yeah, it's like 41 is my favorite. <laughs> you guys are the best class I've ever had. But it's true. I mean, it's true that I actually, I mean, and this is the problem I have in general in life is that I don't tell people I like them. And I think like, I wrote a secret <laughs> note to my students in my Slate article, but they're not going to read my Slate article. It's not a secret note. I just mentioned my first year research methods class. And like, to me, that shows like how much I care about them, that they're on my mind, you know, but I should tell them that. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's so a good idea. sometimes, sometimes I do that like in explicit ways where if I think that I had a pretty like good class, especially with smaller classes, I'll like send an email out to the class and say like, Hey, you guys were like, really on point today good work um also something that i've done in the past for the reason that you're you were mentioning simian um that like sometimes in office hours you only get problem students um is i've sent this is an idea i got from liz page gould actually um i've sent emails out to the students who are doing really well in classes sometimes so like three quarters of the way through the semester i'll send out an email to like people who are doing well and just like congratulate them and tell them that they're doing a great job and then tell them like you know if you like are into this stuff and you want to talk to me more about it, like come see me. Um, and that can sometimes be like an, an rewarding interaction. Um, but yeah, I think or like another way I telling found them to that I like them goes a long way. Yeah. Another way I found to humanize myself is to make a big mistake. That's not consequential, but like dumb and then make fun of myself. So my first, office hours this quarter I went to the wrong room like I held my office hours in the wrong place and nobody showed Mm -hmm. up and I figured it out before I went to class and I went to class and I was like yeah so sorry about that like I was in the wrong place for my own office hours Mm -hmm. and and like I actually had students come to me and be like it's okay everybody makes mistakes (laughs) I thought that was really sweet Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, like, I, you know, maybe the theme is sort of like finding safe ways to be vulnerable, which is kind of an oxymoron, but... Uh, but I think in know, some ways not um, being defensive when you make a mistake yeah. is a sign of strength, too. Like, and people are like, oh, yeah. okay, she's, like, confident enough to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, it is interesting, right? It's a, it's a sign of confidence, but it's still vulnerable and humanizing right. at the same time. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we actually we said we were going to talk about like identity. I think we've sort of talked about it. it is I, I found this a little more interesting than if if we like just recited our teaching statements or whatever. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. That's next episode. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, we've well, I don't know. Maybe maybe we've we've talked about identity, but in a relational way, right? Yeah. We kind of talked a lot about how we, you know, relate to our students. Anyway, we should probably wrap it up. Sounds um, good. Uh, yeah, this is this has been a fun one, guys. Uh, they always are. I, do I always say that? I always think that. I'm like Alexa sending yeah, the yeah, emails exactly. out. Like, <laughs> dear Samina and Alexa, I really is, yes. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, thanks, guys. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Black Goat Podcast. And we'll see you next time. 